Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Frost & Sullivan's latest webinar. Today's event is titled, Future of Clinical Laboratories, Winning Strategies and Emerging Growth Opportunities. My name is Anna, and I oversee Frost & Sullivan's Growth, Innovation, and Leadership Briefings. Today's presenters are Divya Ravishikar, Industry Principal, part of Frost & Sullivan's Life Sciences Practice. And also joining us today is Kyle Fetter, Executive Vice President and General Manager of Diagnostic Services at Xiphon Incorporated. With that, I would now like to hand the presentation over to Davia. Please begin. Thank you, Anna. Um, good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Uh, thank you for joining the webinar today. Um, in terms of the agenda, we will start looking at the, um, some of the broader trends in the um, clinical laboratories market, um, following which I will cover the regional landscape primarily across U.S., Canada, uh, Western Europe, and finally talk about some of the winning strategies for clinical labs to survive in today's constrained environment that is driven by reimbursement costs. My co-presenter, Kyle, will walk you through uh, the 2019 reimbursement trends um, and the impact of PAMA, particularly in the U.S., and how the labs can face um, the revenue compression. So let's start by looking at some of the top trends. Um, one of the key trends that is affecting the way clinical services are uh, being rendered would be the reimbursement and regulatory reforms in different geographies. Um, for example, key changes in the United States include um, the introduction of PAMA-based pricing. Um, second is the national coverage policy for um, next-generation sequencing-based cancer panel testing. Um, and third would be the oversight of LDTs um, by the FDA for literally over uh, 15,000 currently marketed tests. Um, the dialogue still remains open on how um, the FDA proposes to oversee this area. Um, and as far as Europe is concerned, um, the introduction of GDPR um, will increase patients' involvement and give them more control of their data. Um, there will also be a demand from labs um, to have more secure, um, harmonized data curating and reporting practices. The second trend talks about wellness and prevention. Um, employers, ACOs, um, IDN health plans, and government agencies are increasingly focusing on helping patients staying healthy. Um, and detecting symptoms within the at-risk um, population and provide preventive insight. Um, there will also be a preference towards higher deductible plans, um, and, and, and Frost and & Sullivan is seeing that consumers are opting for lower annual premiums and higher out-of-pocket expenses. Um, the third trend here focuses on providing data-driven insights and clinical um, informatics. Um, in a data-driven um, healthcare landscape, there is a tremendous need for mobile IT applications um, that will help doctors and patients um, help improve patient outcomes and reduce overall healthcare costs. 
um, interest, there's, there's also tremendous interest in employing integrated uh, diagnostic decision support tools and predictive analytical software to analyze population level data sets. And this is all primarily peaked because of the interest in precision medicine. Um, pharma companies, um, clinical laboratories, hospitals are all striving to integrate and operate in an interoperable environment, which kind of brings um, another angle to informatics and analyze um, and analytics to positively um, influence patients' healthcare. Um, next is the um, emergence of new um, business models, and this is also connected with another trend that is shown on this slide. Um, am I still audible? Yes, Divya, we can hear you. Okay. Um, so I was going through um, the emergence of new business models, and um, this is connected with another trend that is shown on this slide, which is basically on the decentralization of testing. Um, with decentralization, healthcare has moved beyond the four walls um, of the doctor's um, office or hospitals. So um, alternate care sites and new settings have kindled new opportunities and I should say even challenges. Um, so retail operators um, like Safeway or Walmart um, are now gateway to expanding and reaching out new customers. Um, there is also an inclination to perform more and more point-of-care testing um, with the outburst of retail clinics. So once you touch consumers or customers directly, then we see the emergence of the direct-to-consumer business model, um, and genomics is already reaching patients directly um, through e-commerce portals. Um, let's look at the M&A point of view. Now, um, you know, with the impact of PAMA, this has definitely hampered um, in a several community labs um, here in the U.S., resulting in a lot of consolidation by, um, you know, especially um, by the big wigs in the industry, um, such as the Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp. Uh, we also saw companies like Konica Minolta acquiring labs like Embry Genetics, which is actually a very classic example to show um, investment into the precision medicine um, space um, of how an imaging company is, is trying to bolster its presence in the genomics uh, market. Um, and also as the healthcare industry moves from a fee-for-service to value-based environment, um, you know, health insurers and providers are also joining forces and launching co-branded insurance products. So this actually presents an important trend, or I should say an opportunity for clinical labs to help providers become more effective in their use of laboratory tests um, as they aim for better patient outcomes and lower um, treatment costs. Um, the last trend speaks about medical innovation happening. Um, that is paving way for non-invasive technologies like liquid biopsy for cancer screening um, or even for diagnosis and therapy selection. Um, of course, in the interest of time, I may not be able to speak a lot about liquid biopsy because that's a whole topic altogether, but liquid biopsy as a testing service is a popular model and um, that is flourishing well in the United States where um, the uptake of next-generation sequencing technologies have been considerably higher. <clears throat> We are getting some questions, and we will make sure that we will answer that at the end of the presentation. 
Um, this slide shows how the IVD um, or in vitro diagnostics industry has transformed over years. Um, there's an increased migration of testing services from the hospital setting to a point of care setting and eventually touching the patients at their home. Uh, traditionally speaking, the clinical lab market comprised of physician-based orders through, um, through the lab portals or physician portals. But however, today, um, there are companies like Accessel Labs, AnyLab Test Now, that actually help with self-ordering of tests and provide consumers with the, um, with the ability to um, order tests by themselves. They offer a more retail-like experience. And there is also transparency in the marketplace with regards to pricing. Uh, the next step is the innovation happening at the doctor's offices. We are, we are seeing companies like Teledoc, uh, you know, that offer virtual consultation or, or teleconsultation. Um, POLs or physician office labs are also looking to generate more revenue um, at their facility by offering CLIA waived tests, uh, which enable rapid diagnosis. And again, CLIA waived tests are those that don't need, um, you know, a, a lab personnel or a, a well-qualified technician to perform these tests. Uh, so they are very um, easily done. Uh, you know, it's normally a three-step process. You put in the sample and then you get the test results out. So, so there is um, no variation whomsoever perform these, perform these tests. Moving down the value chain, um, we also see um, you know, sites or you know, companies like CBS offering um, walk-in uh, testing services through their minute clinics, and you know, these have now become centers for low-volume esoteric testing services. Um, and then um, you know, when we eventually move to the patients uh, or the consumers themselves, we're seeing companies like Igobo that is actually offering home blood draw services. Um, Q is another company that's actually developing a, a small mini lab size instrument that can actually test for flu and other common disorders just about at home. So you can see that innovation is happening at every, um, every possible care setting. Um, moving over, um, so here, what are the key focus areas for clinical labs? Um, the first area of innovation is obviously the introduction of new tests, and companies like Quest and LabCorp are constantly trying to uh, bring in new tests or testing services into their portfolio. And they're doing this mostly through acquisitions. Uh, and moving beyond, um, you know, new product testing, they're also leading towards companies like SunQuest, uh, which is one of the leading allies providers, uh, Zyphon, one of the leading companies out there providing revenue um, billing solutions, HealthCoin, which is a blockchain company, uh, to sort of improve a lab's overall workflow efficiency and, um, and operate um, more efficiently and work with big data efforts and collaborate with payers on a large scale. Um, labs are also leaning towards forging partnerships with, um, you know, with channel partners like in Amazon or, um, you know, or even CVS and Walgreens and to, to basically tap into new customers um, that can help with some low-volume testing as well. Um, so this is a quick survey that we did um, in the past. Um, you know, we, we conducted the survey. Um, you know, the, the sample size was close to 15 physicians from different specialties and different health systems. Um, so what are the important factors that play, um, you know, what are the several factors that play an important part um, when selecting a diagnostic service provider, right? So physicians were asked to rank the parameters and, 
as to where they will pay keen attention to when selecting or switching to a test provider. Um, you know, although I should say that patient's insurance was sort of like the default um, option, um, you know, KOLs did place a great importance on the accuracy, turnaround time, and service quality. And all other factors kind of fell off by marginal differences. Um, and this is particularly important to note for labs that are um, that are offering more specialized testing services, uh, you know, more so niche focused on women's health or uh, NIPT or non-invasive prenatal testing. <clears throat> Moving on, um, we will now take a look at the U.S. clinical um, laboratories market. Um, in short, um, let me say that the numbers reflected on this slide comprises of um, the, the clinical lab tests, more so the in vitro tests, and does not include uh, numbers pertaining to imaging tests. So this is all like clinical pathology numbers. Um, and uh, so in, in the U.S., um, the market was valued at about $78.3 billion in 2018. Uh, and this roughly was about 2.1% of the total healthcare um, spend in the U.S. And the total healthcare spend was about $3.65 trillion. Um, the service providers are generally split into four different lab types, or I would say settings. The first one being the hospital labs which you see contributes to the bulk of the revenues. 57% um, of the revenues come from this, uh, you know, this sector. Independent reference laboratories or the specialty labs form the second type of customer segment, um, which is, again, sort of close to 35% of the revenues uh, contributed here. Um, physician, office, physician office labs um, is, the, is the third um, important customer segment. And obviously other lab types like mobile clinics and ambulatory settings and long-term care centers and blood banks. Um, hospital uh, laboratory testing contributes to 35, per, um, sorry, a bulk of the revenues. I already talked about that. You know, all the physician office labs outnumber um, just in their sheer number in terms of facilities. There are close to about 180,000 facilities in the U.S., but they still perform only uh, you know, low volume esoteric testing. So henceforth, the contribution level is pretty low at about 4% of the revenues generated. Um, let's briefly take a look at the opportunities. Um, as far as the opportunities, uh, you know, there have been increased payments for some type of molecular test, especially NIPT testing, um, cancer hereditary testing, um, and that has put certain um, LDT companies or laboratory um, developed test companies in a pretty good spot. Um, this has favored companies like Maria Genetics, Invitae, um, Ambry Genetics, and they've all reported uh, double-digit growth in Q1 of 2019. Um, the self-pay market, which is a direct-to-consumer market, is also heating up, and this has provided additional um, revenue opportunities to capitalize on. Now, talking about risks, um, the national uh, coverage determination guidelines for uh, next generation sequencing based testing, you know, is currently being offered only on a conditional basis. So this is offered only to patients with advanced cancer. Um, and hence, this kind of limits the access of panel based testing to the broader public. And number two, uh, you know, PAMA is offsetting the pricing for several tests. And there is almost 28% slash down in terms of pricing 
for the top 20 commonly ordered tests in the United States. Uh, toxicology labs may also tend to suffer um, due to payment cuts imposed in 2019. Um, the, the top three to four companies in the U.S. market include um, Quest Diagnostics, LabCorp, Bioreference Laboratories, and Myriad Genetics, and these are within the private independent reference laboratories. There are also um, you know, other hospital labs or medical centers like Mayo Clinic, Arub, that also fall within the top five list. Uh, now, their strategy to retain market share has always been through expanding um, through outreach facilities or revenue diversification through other business um, opportunity acquisition. Um, you know, for example, LabCorp uh, made its foray into the CRO market by acquiring Coens, and you know, they're still continuing with some of the recent acquisitions like Skyforming, for example. Um, Quest is actually increasingly focused on their expansion into retail clinics, and Tier 2 labs um, are more focused on expanding their menu uh, of somatic and germline mutation testing. <clears throat> uh, the next slide kind of gives you a good uh, understanding of the, uh, a good snapshot of the M&A trends in the U.S. Um, the number of deals have actually, you know, fallen down. If you were to look at the statistics from 2010 to, um, you know, 20, 2015, uh, you know, well, there have been only a few deals actually even reported in 2018. But broadly speaking, acquisitions can be classified into five different themes. Um, acquisitions were either focused on, uh, you know, like I said, revenue diversification strategy or lab outreach expansion addition of new portfolio testing, like bringing in capabilities of women's health testing in-house or TB testing, um, and even bolstering growth in the precision medicine area and getting access to new customers. Uh, moving on, um, the Canada Clinical Lab Services market um, is valued at about $10.3 billion. Close to 745 million tests were reported in 2018. Um, services are rendered with a slight majority through public hospitals. And each of the Canadian provinces uh, operate very differently in terms of the services and, and coverage for various tests. Um, in terms of opportunities, there is, uh, there is scope for the labs in the U.S to partner with Canadian labs to um, enable more in-region testing because, you know, I saw some interesting statistics that Canada actually still spends close to $30 million, um, for genetic testing where they almost outsource samples to, uh, to the United States. Um, in terms of risks, the market is heavily concentrated amidst the leading labs, and there is also licensing exclusivity for new technologies. Um, especially in provinces like Ontario, for example, and this, this inhibits growth in other um, provinces. Uh, in terms of the companies that are leading this space within the private um, uh, independent reference laboratory setup, it would be LifeLab, DynaCare, and DynaLife. And they do a pretty good job of actually capturing the outpatient um, uh, volumes. So pretty much all of the outpatient testing volumes are captured uh, you know, between these three uh, labs. Um, <clears throat> so moving over, um, this is a glimpse of the top territories within Canada, um, you know, that has the most number of clinical labs. Um, provinces with the highest labs are Ontario, um, Quebec, and British Columbia. 
as I mentioned, the stakeholders and the decision-making authorities are within the respective Ministry of Health when it comes to reimbursement-guided action plans. Um, the European uh, clinical lab services market, uh, you know, this, this slide kind of gives you everything in a nutshell, and this market is valued at about $68.6 billion. Um, and broadly speaking, um, the, the UK and Norway sort of have the highest receptiveness for new technology. Um, Germany and France offer a um, huge population with uh, demand for recurring diagnostic services. Um, although accounting for the lowest percentage in terms of expenditure, UK would still offer a good potential for uh, next-generation diagnostics like digital pathology or genomic testing, and, and therefore it, it is still considered to be a very attractive market for independent reference labs. Um, I should mention that Norway also stands out in terms of its focus on um, high-end laboratory automation for small and uh, mid-tier labs. So they do um, offer a potential for high technology absorption um, within this space. Um, when you're looking at countries like Italy, uh, you know, they do spend considerably higher amounts on diagnostic services, but their expenditure is sort of, uh, you know, is at a pretty unsustainable level, and, and, and they are going through deeper reimbursement cuts. So, so overall, like, you know, we have color-coded those regions for you just to give you a sense for the market attractiveness um, within the Western uh, European territory. Now, if you're really thinking about doing business in Europe, uh, then you should be aware of some of the regulatory and political developments. Um, for example, GDPR, you know, this, this has triggered labs to actually invest in better data quality measures um, because there is increased patient involvement. Uh, changes to the IBD directive, you know, this will, uh, you know, the labs will sort of be indirectly affected because there are going to be changes reflected in the way the tests are going to be classified, the existing ones or the new ones that will hit the market. So they will need to spend, the manufacturers will need to spend considerable amount of cost in, 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 in devising suitable clinical trials and indirectly this will be transferred to the service providers along the value chain. Um, the digital uh, single market 2020, you know, that definitely puts patient as an important stakeholder um, because, uh, you know, this, um, you know, this development sort of encourages cross-border um, data sharing, um, and this will require standardization of um, data and processing across multiple nodules. Um, impact of Brexit uh, will be more on the shortage of physicians and laboratory personnel within the NHS system. Um, slide, and this slide, uh, slide 13 here, um, you know, kind of gives you a good understanding of who are the top operators um, in terms of laboratory chains. Uh, so the top five leading chains, uh, I should say six chains, are um, Sonic Healthcare, Cerba, Unilab, Eurofins, and, and Synlab. Um, and together they actually just constitute 20% of the um, independent laboratory uh, market. So, um, and Europe is constantly witnessing influx of newer players. For example, Medicover, which is actually a dominant player within the East European countries, is actually expanding into the German market. So with, with a very good focus only on specialist outpatient clinics. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are companies um, 
you know, that, that are trying to expand into Benelux in Scandinavia, primarily through acquisitions. Um, you know, for example, Synlab, um, you know, with, with its recent acquisition of this company called AL Control, you know, they're actually an environmental testing player in Scandinavia. Um, and, and therefore, you can see that, you know, they, they are also looking at, you know, diversification opportunities. And, um, in fact, some of the mainstream players like Unilabs have actually opted to grow more organically um, through acquisitions. For example, um, Unilabs also acquired this company called Aso Medical, which is also representative of one of the trends that I spoke of earlier. Um, and then what are some of the winning strategies here? Uh, we, we had a look at some of the challenges, some of the risks, and so, you know, labs will definitely need to align with, um, you know, the top trends and keep in mind what is necessary to, to stay ahead in the competition. So, first of all, labs need um, to invest in a, in a good connectivity system because they need to be connected with the provider and the payer systems. And the benefits of this can include um, enhanced lab order accuracy, patient billing information, um, and ensuring revenue collections are happening appropriately. Uh, number two, develop and expand outreach services. Um, for example, expansion of um, test menu to include preventive and chronic care testing, and also develop infrastructure that is required to serve critically ill patients um, that need access to care um, in locations that are more accessible to them, for example, in an ambulatory environment, right? And then number three, tap into test utilization management tools. Um, these utilization tools can help with understanding variations um, in analysis between different provider orders. And, you know, such data points can be um, used to develop internal guidelines to sort of support um, optimal usage of uh, a laboratory. And number four, designing detailed and customized reports. Um, now, there is a need for patient-specific interpretation reports in today's marketplace. Um, physicians also need assistance with test selection. I mean, there are over 100,000 clinical tests out there. And so we seriously believe that laboratory professionals can contribute their expertise for devising effective and efficient diagnostic and therapeutic protocols. Um, <clears throat> implementing these solutions uh, can help with customization of reports, and they will definitely be perceived, um, you know, it, it, they will definitely be perceived better by laboratory customers. And finally, education outreach. Uh, you know, it's, it's very well known that clinicians actually receive very limited information and training in, a, in, in laboratory medicine. So lab professionals can probably look at developing a simple curriculum and courses that are needed to inform residents on how best they can actually use a clinical test for patient care. So implementing these solutions can um, help with customization of reports um, to a large extent. Now, that being said, um, I would like to hand uh, over the rest of the presentation to my co-presenter, Kyle. Kyle, over to you. Thank you, Divya. Um, uh, great, great point. And uh, there's actually uh, a lot of really good questions that are that are popping up, and, and we'll get some time to address them at the end. And uh, you know, maybe one or two of them will actually get uh, addressed within the, the context of, of uh, the next few slides. So. 
Um, uh, but thank you, and, and you know, feel free to keep them coming because even if we don't get a chance to answer them all, we'll we'll follow up afterwards. Um, so. The first thing is, you know, we, uh, uh, this was uh, uh, definitely um, uh, uh, covered by Divya, but I want to just give you the, um, you know, sort of the context of these moves of major retail uh, into these healthcare delivery models, as well as um, uh, the move of pharma into diagnostics, because I think it's important in terms of laboratories, um, you know, whether you're a manufacturer, a data provider, uh, operating a laboratory, or otherwise in the laboratory space, um, uh, you know, it's important to think about how you will operate and position yourself in light of these changes and uh, to the overall industry. Um, so you've got a, a combination of different things going on. Uh, we've got Amazon, Chase, Berkshire Hathaway Alliance, which obviously has got a lot of um, uh, a lot of press buzz around it. Um, obviously, there's a, a move in, in terms there that may still happen uh, along in, in terms of partnering with pharmacy benefit management um, and uh, and using things like AI tools for in-home healthcare diagnostics um, and, and taking consumer products like Amazon Echo and, and other things that are out there and effectively um, uh, uh, providing um, uh, uh, more of a healthcare bend to those applications that are currently used in, in, in consumer markets. Um, the other piece is uh, important to understand that Amazon has now obtained licenses to uh, distribute DME in 48 of the 50 states. So all, uh, you know, very clear uh, um, inclination towards uh, um, uh, a, a very serious um, uh, uh, moved by Amazon and, 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 and obviously as well as Chase and, and um, Berkshire Hathaway into the healthcare space. Um, additionally, you've got retailers like CVS and, and Walmart uh, partnering and or even being acquired and merging with payers. Um, and, and the idea in, in many different cases here, and as we look at this, is there's, there's dissatisfaction with the overall cost of healthcare and the efficiency of, of uh, care delivery in traditional settings like hospitals. Um, and, and that's really the driver behind these moves, this move towards the consumer who has more control over their healthcare and information um, is very important for, for uh, laboratories to understand because that means that there's an increased role for diagnostics because there's a greater focus on preventative care in this market. There's also an increased focus on data. Um, any of the players, particularly on the pharmaceutical side, um, are making heavy pushes into the acquisition of diagnostic data and other things um, so that they can better understand how and when different therapies are being delivered. Um, so all of these drivers are very important to understand from a laboratory perspective, again, because um, as, as laboratories position their thinking in the future, they have to provide sort of operational um, uh, um, capabilities that align with these changes in the marketplace, as well as enhanced data sets from both a testing uh, perspective as well as from a uh, financial perspective. Uh, all really important changes. Um, one other thing that I would say is um, uh, in addition to traditional providers who are failing to meet consumer demands on price, access, choice, convenience, um, you, you see a number of different uh, um, pushes uh, from retail providers to actually be able to provide things like diagnostic testing in a point-of-care setting. 
Um, uh, it, it enables a more efficient delivery of, um, uh, of, of other healthcare products, um, as well as uh, a better patient experience because they don't necessarily have to bounce around uh, over a period of days waiting for results. So big pushes, important for laboratory to understand these things in general, important for manufacturers to understand as well. Um, so moving over a little bit, uh, one of the, the huge impacts in the U.S. to clinical laboratories right now, whether they be clinical lab, physician office lab, molecular diagnostics, a hospital outreach laboratory programs, pain management and device, is how reimbursement is changing across the market. Um, you've got uh, deeper and deeper cuts um, uh, uh, through the Protecting Access to Medicare Act, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, but also you have more coverage limitations. Um, and uh, uh, so this, all of these things are um, creating the additional need for laboratories to not just be more operationally efficient from a, uh, a technical perspective, but also from an administrative perspective and uh, in a revenue cycle perspective. Um, and, and so all of these different things are, are um, uh, playing a major uh, or, or having a major impact across the industry and their need to uh, optimize their processes, um, increase their efficiencies across the board. Um, in clinical lab, you have fewer laboratories that are uh, offering full testing menus. Um, and again, a growth in specialization, um, uh, it, it, which also leads to a, a decline in rural laboratories. Um, you've got increased referrals in addition to specialization that I just mentioned. You have increasing referrals to esoteric laboratories and tighter partnerships between those laboratories uh, and independent and hospital outreach laboratories. Um, we continue to see industry consolidation. Uh, one of the byproducts of reimbursement cuts is that uh, smaller laboratories, um, rural laboratories in some cases uh, and others, can't necessarily um, uh, survive uh, in, in the current market from a reimbursement perspective, so they're getting picked up by larger laboratories. Uh, and you're also seeing independent laboratories from a larger perspective who are also dealing with cuts, uh, needing to align themselves better with hospitals through joint ventures, um, and, uh, and, and uh, in, in, in many cases, uh, that move probably provides a, a better benefit to um, uh, to the uh, independent lab than it does to the hospital in a case like that. But there's just a number of different things going on there that independent laboratories are doing to uh, survive. You have physician operatory la uh, laboratory, you have the, the menus actually expanding right now with greater capabilities in terms of point of care testing. Um, you've got molecular diagnostics uh, getting renewed investment in specialty labs. Um, uh, the, um, the need for companion diagnostics that I mentioned a little bit earlier in terms of pharma um, and, and their needs to uh, actually incorporate diagnostics into the treatment of their, uh, their patient and their more targeted drugs. Um, all of these things are increasing the need for uh, molecular diagnostics in specialty laboratories. Uh, you also see payers finally starting to respond to some of those trends by enhancing coverage for things like next-gen sequencing um, uh, uh, um, for patients, full genome sequencing and full exome sequencing. So a number of different changes going on in that market. You've actually got hospital outreach laboratories who are uh, um, uh, uh, uniquely positioned in the changing market space to, um, to really sort of benefit, partially because uh, many of the cuts that are coming from the commercial payers 
um, uh, under the Protecting Access to Medicare Act are le having less of an impact on hospital outreach laboratories than they are having on independent laboratories. Uh, that's because more hospital laboratory contracts are decoupled from the Medicare fee schedule than it is uh, in independent laboratories. Um, you, you've also got this, uh, the, the ability of outreach, hospital outreach laboratories to, uh, to pull in business from the surrounding communities, uh, perform enhanced turnaround times, um, and, and really manage those relationships uh, closely with their referring physicians in the surrounding area. Um, and, and, and the decreasing cost of technology and the better tools that are out there in terms of managing laboratory services are putting them in a very unique position uh, to capitalize on, on what has become a, a, a harder impact for independent laboratories. Um, in pain management and de uh, uh, device, you're actually seeing some uh, post uh, PAMA pricing uh, stabilization, which is really important, um, and advancing coverage for uh, drug management genetic testing like pharmacogenomics finally after a period of time. Um, the opioid crisis, while, while in many ways um, being handled from a regulatory perspective, is also greatly enhanced uh, in terms of uh, drug testing and, um, and understanding exactly what the toxicity is of even legal drugs and legal applications uh, within a patient. So, so all of the, um, uh, uh, the, the sort of stabilization uh, there from a, a drug management perspective in terms of coverage and pricing um, is, is making sure that that uh, market actually continues to provide a valuable service. Um, but you also have consolidation in that market. Uh, you have the bigger providers in, in, in uh, drug management who are, are um, uh, pulling together uh, specialty service labs in the toxicology space. And, uh, and, and, and combining up those resources. And, um, and, and so it's an important trend that we see. Uh, underlying all of this is the need for technology. Um, it's, it's a need for technology from a laboratory information uh, perspective. You have to have optimized workflow in there, uh, greater connectivity uh, with the patients, the payers, and the physicians through your revenue cycle management products. Um, it's very important uh, um, and, and, uh, in terms of taking that data and, and uh, working it into value-based pricing uh, schemas, uh, and also working it um, uh, 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 different financial requirements in terms of GAP, SOX, and FASB. Um, very important to have uh, uh, data structures that um, are, are uh, uh, strong. And, and there's a, another important underlying uh, uh, portion to this, which is the, the protecting access to Medicare Act reporting requirements. Um, so really quickly, um, the, uh, the Protecting Access to Medicare Act resulted in a decrease in the Medicare rates for laboratories for most services as um, uh, about 75% of services, um, as uh, Divya mentioned earlier, uh, in 2018. Uh, there are further cuts that are, that are now impacting the industry in 2019, and there will be further cuts after that in 2020. Um, some of the general impacts of those cuts across the industry were, uh, uh, are, are on this chart, right? So whether you're a pathology lab, seeing anywhere from a 1.5% uh, um, a cut to a total of a 4% cut, um, molecular laboratories who are staying relatively stable because most of the testing um, was, uh, was actually fairly, um, uh, uh, fairly um, uh, unaffected by PAMA rates. Um, clinical laboratory taking a heavy hit over the next three years, going from 2% in, in 2018 all the way to a 5.3% cut across the board 
in, in um, 2020, uh, and, and some of the other markets as well. Uh, particularly impacted is the nursing home market, um, and you actually see many diagnostic providers who are pulling out of that space because the, the ability to pull, uh, to actually perform that type of testing um, at, at, the, at the cost that they're seeing is becoming more and more difficult. So historically, um, important to understand, I think, um, uh, where this came from, uh, and, and so I will, um, I'll discuss that a little bit, but ultimately, um, you know, you have these private payers who are now following suit uh, based on what, what Medicare is doing. Um, and initially, uh, in Q1 and Q2, and even Q3 to some extent of, of 2018, um, the private payer rates remained relatively stable. Uh, we saw a dramatic impact to a number of different rates in, uh, in, in the fourth quarter of 2019, or 2018, I apologize. Um, and, and so you've got uh, the drivers for a lot of these trends being that big payers like Aetna, Cigna, the Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, <clears throat> and, and United Healthcare, who cover almost 50% of covered lives across the board, uh, maybe a little bit more all in, um, are, are now offering uh, 20 to 25 uh, percent below the 2018 Medicare rates. So that takes rates that had already been cut 10 percent, and now you have commercial payers who are trying to offer in-network rates of, uh, of a dramatic cut against the already cut Medicare rates. Uh, it's likely that if laboratories don't uh, uh, protest and not accept these rates, that such cuts will continue into 2019 and 2020. So it's really important as laboratories consider going in network um, uh, that they also think about what the impact to them is long term of, of uh, continuing to accept these reduced rates because they're simply going to have to report out on them. Again, we are in the reporting period for the next uh, PAMA period as we speak. Um, so why is this all happening? Uh, I've got a little slide here that actually outlines um, for over 30 years um, we had uh, we, we had a, uh, a frozen fee schedule, uh, meaning that there were some cuts, but it was always against rates uh, that it had been established in the 80s. Um, and, uh, and, and for an extended period of time, um, uh, whether you thought those rates should be increased or decreased, um, uh, the Medicare program uh, became less uh, happy about the fact that they had uh, um, uh, they were paying such a, a, a what they perceived to be a large amount for laboratory testing, but which is actually a, a fairly low percent when you consider um, what their overall healthcare spend is. So, in uh, in 2014, the Protecting Access to Medicare Act was released as the Medicare program thought that they were paying uh, higher than than market, um, and uh, and and based on the information they got um, uh, through what many of us would call the flawed process, um, they they were able to uh, uh, cut their uh, rates significantly, as we saw in 2018. Um, but the idea was really that uh, um, the Protecting Access to Medicare Act was. Uh, the Medicare actually receiving the market rates paid for clinical laboratory services uh, from the top laboratories. They would choose the median price point, which oftentimes was not a good reflection of the average reimbursement for a given service, and then they would um, uh, come up with a rate for that service based on the information submitted, um, and in many cases that rate represented a 10% cut 
uh, or more to the um, current fee schedule. They were only allowed to take up to a 10% cut uh, per year um, for, for each laboratory service, but um, uh, to test that had little to no margin already, that was a pretty dramatic uh, impact to much of the laboratory industry. Um, so uh, with these 75% uh, of codes getting a, a 10% or, or getting a decrease and only 10% getting an increase, um, it, it stands to reason that a number of laboratories are going through a, a fundamental transition um, and needing to change the way that they operate and think about revenue and, and data, um, not just in light of, of reimbursement changes, but also some of the changes that we mentioned earlier with retailers moving more into uh, um, uh, healthcare delivery. So, it's important to understand uh, that the CIO has a very large role in, in laboratory diagnostics today. Um, and, and maybe in the past it was understated, but you now have a, a need to really understand your reimbursement data and your lab data across the board. Uh, and, and, and that actually reaches further to uh, the slide that uh, Dibia presented earlier into things like uh, connectivity and integration uh, with all of these different providers that are out there. Um, but the idea is, as part of this PAMA submission, um, the CIO has to make sure that laboratories can pull the exact data they need. Um, and, and that means that if they include uh, all of the correct data, um, uh, they also have to exclude all of the incorrect data. So our own actual um, uh, analysis of what was submitted to Medicare in, uh, 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 for the 2016 period of reporting um, that ultimately impacted the 2018 and 2019 rates was that many payments were included in that data uh, that probably shouldn't have been, meaning it skewed the average uh, market trend lower uh, than what was um, actually being received by laboratories across the industry. Um, and, and while it was median data, which the industry uh, correctly had an issue with, um, uh, there was also um, uh, a lot of data included in there that had been appealed, um, gone through other processes, and ultimately what was submitted uh, um, was, was actually lower than the median rates for many of those CPT procedures. Um, and, and we know that by analyzing our own cross-industry data sets, um, uh, which, which sort of represents the laboratory industry across the United States. Um, and uh, another important piece besides understanding the data you're submitting is having the source data easily available to back up in the case of an audit. The penalties for mistakes are large, um, and, and the CFO and the CIO in many cases are signing off on the data provided, actually in all cases. So um, in that case, having the ability to easily access um, uh, all of the um, information that backs up the reports is, is critical. Um, platforms like ours will make the 835 and, and, and in many cases the paper EOB available through the platform, so auditing is very quick. So obviously the, the different challenges under this whole submission uh, activity is, um, is being able to identify underpayments, uh, overpayments, uh, units where um, uh, multiple units were consolidated um, and, and, and that results in a different payment schema. All of these things have to be reported uh, uniquely um, and uh, being able to correctly reconcile units billed versus units paid is always a, a challenge. Uh, one common error that we typically saw was incorrect reporting of bundled payments uh, as well as uh, reporting um, 
uh, underpayments by reporting against the units billed as opposed to the, um, <clears throat> the units paid. So uh, they would report for <coughs> apologies <coughs> would report uh, four units getting paid uh, when in actuality only two units had been paid for that service. The other piece uh, of the industry that's very challenging right now is that you've got a number of uh, payers who are working with third-party uh, benefit, uh, lab benefit management companies. What that actually does is creates more obstacles for laboratories to get paid. Um, so you have companies like uh, potentially Avalon, Beacon, uh, Evacor, AIM. Uh, they are contracting with the major payers like United Healthcare, Cigna, Anthem. Um, and what they are actually putting is more and more prior authorization requirements in place uh, for both inexpensive and expensive testing to get paid. Um, so uh, the, the idea being for a laboratory to correctly manage this process with any kind of efficiency, they have to have automation tools in place. The cost of the services and the reimbursement for these services simply doesn't really support a, a lot of manual intervention. So there needs to be tools that help manage all of these um, types of processes. So companies like ours have to really, uh, Zyphon that is, who provides uh, the re revenue cycle management software uh, component for laboratories, really have to focus on our ability to integrate quickly with automated solutions here, um, and, and that ultimately results in, in fewer decreases in payments. Uh, a number of trends by specialty uh, cardiovascular disease over the past 12 to 18 months has seen over a 50% increase in prior auth-related denials. Uh, that's directly correlated with the increased use of these lab benefit management uh, programs that I mentioned on the previous slide. Uh, you get 72 or 73% or uh, of oncology imaging and diagnostics where, where these types of esoteric tests are, are extremely critical, um, uh, uh, having denials, and then a 62% increase in women's health-related denials. Uh, and then you have over 40% of prior authorizations uh, getting abandoned due to complex approval processes. So it's having a huge impact in terms of reimbursement uh, 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 for these types of services. Um, you have uh, a, a move away, which actually cr uh, creates a opportunity for many of the uh, uh, diagnostic providers that are out there from exclusive contracts with the largest laboratories in the country. Uh, so those two or three laboratories that in some cases had exclusive agreements with United Healthcare and Aetna, um, the, the payers moved away from it. Interestingly, in terms of their own analysis, uh, they found that it, uh, even having these really reduced rates with these large payers did not actually result in a decrease in their cost, um, uh, did not improve patient outcomes, and, and did not enable them to obtain value-based pricing. Uh, and so moving away from these uh, um, uh, exclusive agreements was really um, actually in many ways a testament to uh, um, regional and hospital labs who could provide better turnaround time, uh, more convenient uh, patient access, um, and, and testing that was more catered to their particular region. So it's very important ongoing that uh, laboratories think of themselves also as data companies. Um, you know, one of the fundamental problems of the industry is that uh, they're either on uh, uh, dated licensed uh, software technology, uh, or in some cases they're on software platforms that have been migrated to, to, um, to the web 
However, the problem is, is those types of platforms don't necessarily enable the level of connectivity that are required right now in, in the current paradigm. Uh, for us, at this point, um, uh, laboratories are focused heavily on bringing in clinical data um, into their, uh, their laboratory process, meaning not just the, the lab testing data, but also the treatment data, uh, the phenotypic data on the patient and what's actually impacting their care. And, and then that's actually um, uh, uh, driving a, a lot of different reimbursement opportunities for the laboratory. Um, what, what you also see is that they're uh, wrapping more applications around their technology. Um, uh, the truth of the matter is, as long as you have a technology that is, is highly scalable and, and, and efficient and integrated, um, uh, you, you can wrap those applications around. But if it's a dated, uh, if it's a more of a dated technology, it won't necessarily support things like web services, and that's what enables you to have real-time connectivity with payers, uh, pharmacies, physicians, um, patients, and, and, and those, capables are, or those capabilities are more and more critical in today's environment, uh, or you simply can't handle all of the changes uh, that are going on from a coverage perspective, as I mentioned prior authorization earlier, uh, greater denials and cuts in reimbursement, uh, facilitating the need not just for more clinical data to support laboratory testing, but also for better patient engagement tools. Uh, so you need all of those different things to uh, uh, compete in this environment, but you also need the ability to view yourself as a data provider. Um, laboratories uh, have huge demand for their data right now, and, and, um, and, and so uh, it, it's demand from their physicians, it's demand from their patients, and it's demand from other providers like payer, payers and pharmacies. And, and so they really need to think about how they aggregate both their clinical and financial data uh, to see the value of that information because it's not just a, a way to provide better service, it's a way to create additional revenue. So with that, uh, you know, the, uh, to, to add on exactly to what uh, Divya summarized, we've got uh, the need for um, uh, better uh, uh, clinical tools and, and connectivity for the systems used by laboratories. Um, laboratories need to continue from a hospital perspective to both uh, um, uh, increase their outreach capabilities um, to drive down their own costs, but also to pull in the community positions. Um, and, and they uh, certainly need to uh, be able to drive down their operational and administrative costs um, for testing. So, so technology plays a huge role in that. Uh, part of it is to make the, the entire process more efficient and provide a better patient experience. And the other piece of it is to better uh, uh, have data available um, for, for all of the different markets that demand it, as I mentioned before. So with that, I will present one quick uh, hospital uh, lab case study. Um, interestingly, uh, hospital outreach laboratories in particular only run about a 65% clean claim rate, meaning that 35% uh, of their claims have some type of error on them. So from a focus perspective, from a case study, for when we implemented our technology solution in that laboratory, we were able to increase their clean claim rate up to 80% um, by the time that they went live. Uh, they are now at 87 to 90%. Uh, their DSOs have decreased by 40%. It was uh, closer to 60 days before. Um, and, and now it's at 37 days, which factors in a whole period that's mandatory for hospitals. Um, and uh, in additional ways, what happens with a lot of hospitals is uh, the cost of services are so low relative to other procedures that they perform that they'll actually write off 
many of the procedures that don't have correct information. Um, so by implementing our system, we were actually able to uh, uh, reduce their inaccurate revenue adjustments by 50 percent, uh, reduce eligibility and demographic error adjustments by 88 uh, percent, and reduce their medical necessity denials on both the front end and the back end by 64 percent, which resulted in a 20 to 30 percent increase across our hospital outreach laboratories uh, and even a 36 percent uh, increase for, for our most recent case study. So thank you to everybody, and, and I'm happy to jump into questions with Divya now. Great. Um, thank you, Kyle. Um, so we do have a couple of questions, and um, so I'm going to go through that one by one, and we can see um, how best we can go through all of this. Um, so mm -hmm. the first question is, um, besides imaging applications, what are the use um, cases that AI can be helpful in clinical labs? So that's a very good question, and in fact, um, that actually closely resonates with one of the areas that I did uh, touch upon um, in my uh, part. Um, so the use of AI in genomics is pretty evident with um, oncology applications. So, um, and liquid biopsy is actually um, enabling us to do that. Um, in fact, you can also follow companies like uh, Freenome. Uh, I believe they announced their first uh, clinical validation um, trial sometime in the mid of last year um, to see how they are actually coming up with a, um, a computational platform that can actually help predict the risk of a certain um, cancer type. Um, and another area where um, AI is catching up, um, and again, that's more evidently seen is um, digital pathology. Um, I really wouldn't classify that as a completely an imaging technique because we still um, you know, use like FFTE samples, um, and you can refer to companies like um, Procia, and they are actually developing an AI-powered um, computational and digital pathology imaging software uh, that can actually help with the risk uh, prediction capability. So, so really, the the hot topic buttons for AI within um, within the diagnostic uh, setting or for clinical labs would be, uh, you know, genomics, oncology, uh, liquid biopsy, and digital pathology. And I think these are uh, the first shot areas where we will see an immediate impact or effect of AI being deployed. Um, I don't know, like, uh, Kyle, do you have um, anything to add to that? Or if not, maybe we can go to the next question there on big data. I'll just quickly weigh in. Uh, so we're seeing heavy application of, of AI in terms of clinical decision support, uh, you know, what types of testing is available based on patient indications, makes it easier for a, a, a physician to figure out um, uh, what to order. Uh, we also see that same artificial intelligence used to then analyze um, uh, uh, patient outcomes based on different uh, test results. Uh, from a revenue cycle perspective, we're actually, we actually utilize our artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, for um, understanding financial revenue accruals, um, uh, calculating patient responsibility at the time of order, um, as, as well as uh, um, uh, sort of optimizing accounts receivable process, assigning errors to the, the right user, the one who has the highest likelihood of success. So, so there's a lot of different AI applications in finance and, and revenue cycle management, as well as from a clinical perspective into decision support. Wonderful. Thank you, Kyle. I think that also resonates very closely with the with the next two questions, and I'm going to combine that into two, uh, combine that into one. So big data um, helps physicians optimize uh, test orders and treatment choices. 
Um, and could you give us an example of a company and best practice? And then the, the second question, I think, which also ties closely with the, with the whole test ordering process, is um, the second question reads something like, you mentioned test utilization application a couple of times. Could you give us some best practice examples? Um, so I know Zyphen cuts across uh, you know, multiple data points there, and I do know that you guys do track um, this important parameter. So can you uh, shed some light on this uh, if you have some case studies or labs that you work with closely, Kyle? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, maybe not using a, a, a case study as, as a, the example simply because, you know, I have to definitely respect confidentiality of our different labs, I would say. One of the, uh, the analysis that we do across all of our laboratories is better understanding uh, which tests are getting denied based on patient indications. Um, and, and, and which tests are potentially getting ordered based on, uh, on patient indications that aren't getting paid. Um, and, and so the, the way that we can actually take that information and leverage it to the benefit of our laboratory is, is to better understand when they have physicians who are either ordering off indication or potentially just using, you know, the wrong uh, diagnoses and things like that, which tends to happen. Uh, sometimes they refer to the primary diagnosis, um, uh, uh, you know, for a previous visit or, or a current visit, but not the relevant diagnosis uh, for a certain test. So we're constantly looking at that type of data um, to analyze uh, where, where a laboratory may have inoptimal ordering uh, going on and, um, and where physician education may be required. Um, but uh, but you, you certainly um, use those tools to then better educate your market um, uh, on, on, on appropriate test ordering and also um, uh, understanding um, uh, where there's tests that are not utilized. I think uh, providers across the board would be shocked at how many tests don't get ordered uh, when they are indicated to be ordered, and that's the type of uh, data that we analyze as well um, so that we, our, our customers have a better sense where, where, uh, where physicians potentially aren't ordering services that they should be ordering that ultimately would have uh, decreased patient cost of care. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for that elaborate explanation. Um, so I think we are at the top of the hour, and we do have some other questions, but we'll make sure that we will get back to you one-on-one -on -one, um, to address those questions. Uh, maybe I'll turn it over back to Anna if you want to add some concluding thoughts. Anna, back to you. Thank you so much, Kyle. Thank you so much, Devia. Yes, um, if you'd like uh, more information regarding our Leadership Council, please reach out to us uh, via our GoFrost line at myfrost at frost.com, or you can contact us at 1-877-463-7678. And uh, you can also um, provide some feedback and uh, rate the presentation, let us know what would you like to see uh, on our next webinars. And uh, again, uh, follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter for upcoming events, and our Leadership Council, as well as research, press releases. And um, so at this time, I just wanted to um, make sure that I, I just remind our audience, I know those uh, of you that just joined or joined in the middle of the presentation, the session will be available on demand shortly. So uh, you can go back in and, and listen. And uh, again, just once again, if there's any questions or feedback, I have posted Divya's contact details on your screen as well as our corporate communications contact. So please get in touch with us. Once again, we'd like to thank uh, Kyle Butter 
from Zyphon for joining us today. And we want to thank everyone for their time and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.